With the inception and traction that blockchain and crypto has gathered, the world is possibly on the verge of the largest evolution since the mainstream of the internet. Given the fluidity and dynamic nature of this technology, business leaders, enthusiasts, and veterans all need to band together to navigate the current and upcoming storms. Participants in Web 3.0 want a trusted resource that gives them pertinent information about projects, tokens, technology, and businesses. We are business people talking the business of crypto. We are Y Whales. Thank you so much, Wyatt, for joining us today. This is a special podcast. We have Mr. Stefan Goss, who is here with us talking about his new project, Atera, uh, as well as the very much esteemed Lily Wang from QIS. So, so Stefan, I, 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 we need to kind of have a, a quick, uh, you know, disclaimer disclosure. You're normally my co-host, um, but you've been very clear with both Lily and I uh, that, that this is we are to push you. We are to help you flush out your ideas. Uh, and the purpose of, of this podcast is really, um, really one of your final stress tests before going live to the market. Is that correct? Yeah, totally. So basically, I mean, I want to get a lot of the questions that I will inevitably get. So I think I would love to address those. So it's definitely part of that. And then just also, I mean, I'm going to get all the good questions at some point. So I might as well answer them all now. So yeah, ask all the regular questions you'd ask in a regular podcast. Uh, be as mean as I would be. And there we go. Fabulous. Awesome. So, so let's go ahead and kick it off. So uh, Atera, um, give, give me your elevator pitch for Atera. Yeah. Sure. Actually, do you mind if we kind of start back with the thesis? Sorry. I, I know. Yeah. Go, go for, go for the problem that we're, we're attempting to solve. Yeah. Okay. Just kind of step back a little. So I, so I've been in crypto since like 2014 in like various ways and kind of recently really got back into it with DeFi, et cetera. And I think one of the things that I really started noticing is that the, it was very difficult to learn, even for somebody who's been in crypto for a long time, right? It's just not an easy onboarding. Everything is relatively difficult to figure out. And the usability is just not super high yet. And I think one of the really interesting things that I figured out once I really started digging into this is Ethereum has about 10 million monthly active users. That means there's 10 million Ethereum addresses that are being used on a monthly basis, which I think to me, especially being very deep into crypto space was super interesting because like I just assumed, oh, Everyone has an Ethereum address, right? Because it's Ethereum. Like, who doesn't have Ethereum? And so when I realized that literally less than 0.1% of the world has an active Ethereum address, I was like, oh, shit. The adoption level is still so low, right? And I think that's a where I started thinking, like, oh, man, why, right? And really using a lot of the products, to me, at least explains why, right? It's just very difficult to use. I mean, everything from the, the wallets aren't always super easy to... The chains, the projects, really kind of the, the whole ecosystem is very much built by people in the crypto space for people in the crypto space, right? And it hasn't really gone to like mainstream adoption yet. And I guess part of my thesis is this. I think mainstream adoption will come when we have really easy to use products. I don't believe that if we keep building highly technical products that we will ever get mainstream adoption, right? And so... That was kind of where I got started. And I was like trying to figure out this, like, what can I do to really start getting into the adoption game? Because I guess to me, long run, the institutions will go where the people are, not the other way around, right? And so that, that was really, I guess, the, the overarching thesis, right? How do I start onboarding a ton of people onto a blockchain? And what do I have to build to make that happen? And so really, that's kind of uh, what Terra is really about. Go ahead. So, so jumping back, and, and as long as we're going in the background, which is fabulous, let's talk about let's talk about Mr. Stefan Goss here and and your history, um, you know, in in, in Web two, um, because you're, you're you're quite accomplished in that regards. 
Yeah, yeah. So, okay, I'm originally from Switzerland. Uh, I moved to the U.S. when I was 17 uh, by myself at an exchange semester in Toledo, Ohio, and then just kind of stayed. Um, so I just didn't want to go back. I love the U.S. I love the Americans. Everyone's very adventurous. Everyone's risk takers, entrepreneurs, uh, and Swiss people are a lot more conservative. And so I don't fit in well in Switzerland. I do fit in quite a bit better in the U.S. And so I went to school in the U.S., um, then I became a professional skydiver and lived in a tent for the better part of a year. So that was kind of a, a fun, fun break from 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 my career. Um, and so then started. Um, so I, I was in school. I had an F1 student visa. And so as it turns out, you are not allowed to have a job because you need a work visa for having a job. But you can just like make money on the Internet. And so I started building a whole bunch of websites, um, like tons of them. I probably have 30, 40 different projects. Some of them worked. Some of them didn't. I uh, got really good at buying media, advertising, kind of user acquisition. And so then built two companies in the user acquisition space. And so I still have those two companies. Actually, they're both in San Diego. Uh, they've had between 60 and 100 employees for the last four or five years. So it's kind of a, it's been super cool. We actually won Forbes 30 or 30 for that. So it's been, it's been pretty fun. And so crypto space wise, my, my old roommate was like, we should mine crypto in 2014. It was like, oh, cool. Okay. And so he explained me, he got me into the whole thing. And um, we had a, our, our office had half off electricity. So that was one of the perks we negotiated when we had <laughs> negotiated a lease. We we're like, okay, sweet. We'll build a bunch of miners. Uh, the, the problem ended up being that we did have an AC that could support the heat kicked off by the miners. So we, that lasted for like six months till the hardware started like falling apart. But, um, so that, and then I did a, another crypto project in uh, 2018, which was a, an asset backed stable coin. So that was kind of my last foray into it. And so, yeah, back with back with this, back fully. And I've been doing a lot of DeFi and kind of various, various of the more like tradey, investy type of things for the last couple of years. Yeah. So so clearly, you know, again, and that's the the precursor I was trying to get is is you've done tech startups. You're, you're familiar with the space um, and, and understanding what it means to take a technology and a brainchild and actually put it into people's hands. And then not not even that, but also how to attract people that don't understand or haven't seen this and educate them on the space. So so I, those are the a few precursors I want to get out of the way. Yeah. And, actually, and now it's so. My company has spent about $140 million on ads uh, and ads for our own websites. Not like it's not like an affiliate or like um, agency thing. We've spent basically $140 million of my money on ads. So uh, we have loads and loads of huge acquisition experience. So that's really what I'm trying to bring to the space, right? It's kind of that, like, how do you actually engage with uh, like end retail users versus very highly technically sophisticated users? Gotcha. So let's, let's dive into, are you ready to dive into uh, a Terra and kind of the, the, the problem, the real, the real issue um, that we're, we're getting after? Yeah, totally. And so the, I think the problem is fairly, I mean, there's multiple problems that I'm, I think it, it's funny, like there's multiple problems that have a lot of little solutions that add up to kind of hopefully a cool ecosystem. So really the, the usability, and I include usability, I include everything from safety, right? You probably should, if, if my mom wants to use DeFi, she probably shouldn't get rugged every month, right? She probably should have some way of doing key management so that she doesn't constantly lose her money. Um, she probably needs someone to call when she does actually, in fact, lose her keys, right? Like there needs to be customer support, right? How do you really bring much more of a traditional usability um, just like, I mean, again, if you go to Google, right, like how do you get that level of customer experience into blockchain, right? That's, I guess, the, the underlying thesis. And so what we're doing is we're doing an L1. So it is actually a full-on blockchain. It is 
fully decentralized. So it's not a 21 validator type thing. We really believe in the traditional crypto values, fully decentralized, immutable, kind of all the, the, the crypto good stuff. But really what the difference is the focus is going to be very much on usability. And what that means is we're trying to build a financial system, like a global financial system. And I mean, basically banking services, stock trading services, right? Just kind of like, but what the day-to-day -day end user would need, right? Literally the whole idea is like, does my mom need this financial service? And not does a whatever DeFi person with $100 million in Ethereum assets need this service, right? So it's kind of a different, different way of looking at it. And so, yeah, go ahead. So, so, so clearly we're talking about the 99%. We're, we're talking about the people that have not yet entered crypto. We're talking about, uh, again, the, the, we're, it's, there's no finish line here. It's we're getting to the starting line when mainstream, adop mainstream adoption has been kind of sorted out through regulations and everything else is, is to have a product that, that sounds like it's ready to go uh, for, for my mom who, who may want to do some, some banking and, and, and uh, you know, what, what we refer to as DeFi, but they would never want to know what that name is. <laughs> yeah, it's not even the 99%, right? It's the 99.9%. Like literally no one has crypto yet, like in the greater world, no. if you look at it. And I think that's the really interesting part, right? There's so much benefit of crypto for so many people, right? I mean, I've spent a lot of time in Africa just recently and like people don't even have a bank account, right? Like sending money from one country to another, Western Union takes a 20% fee, right? There's all these like crazy inefficiencies in the old system and people just making massive fees. And so I think that's really just a problem that I was a lot more interested in solving, right? How do we solve the much greater problem of just like banking the underbanked, right? Kind of access, really worldwide access to crypto. And I think a big part there is that if it's not usable, it just will never be accessible. And I think that's really, I think the core of how do you get there? So, so right now, if I wanted to send a uh, hundred dollars of of crypto on Ethereum, it it could probably it's probably going to cost me about fifty dollars in fees. <laughs> so, so that that's to me not not quite we're not quite at the future yet. And then if you talk about side chains, now we got a whole different problem of having to bridge. You still got to pay fees um, and bounce around. So, so how can you overcome? You know, again, what what a half trillion dollar company has is really failed to do. Um, how are you going to be able to accomplish that? So, okay, I mean, just I don't even think it's the, like with Ethereum, the problem for users isn't really the fee, right? It's actually figuring out how do you use Ethereum, right? I mean, the, the process is lengthy, right? We're not talking about like going to a website, signing up and then having it right. You have to set up an address. You have to figure out key management. You have to figure out a wallet. Then you have to bridge on, you have to bridge off. And we can only fix some of those problems, at least initially, right? But just the, the user experience, the UX, the front end, right? How do you make that just really easy, really user-friendly? And then how do you layer services on top of it, right? I think one of the big, and again, this is kind of a collection of a lot of little changes, but I think one of the key changes we're making is that we allow users to authorize service providers to take a fee on their, on their address, so, for example, if I have an address that has $10,000 in it, right, I can go and whatever, just using random examples, Credit Suisse, right, I can go to a big bank and say, hey, can you help me set up a wallet, right? And they can get authorized to take a 0.25% of fee, right, which gives them a revenue model, which actually incentivizes them that if I want to call them and say, hey, uh, I screwed up, I can't find my coins, right, that they, that they will actually pick up the phone and say, okay, let, let us help you find the coins, right? So how do you bring much more of a traditional services model, which I believe, I mean, it, unless we have a way of getting good customer support, crypto will not be able to be used by my mom, right? It's just it's just not going to get there. And that's not just for me, right? I mean, it's it's people who are on feature phones, right? I mean, there's such a massive population 
that we really want to start addressing. And just having that level of service, I think, is crucial. And, and again, it's kind of a, so it's lots of little changes, right? It's just how do we give service providers a revenue model? And then how we, do we just design the websites to actually be easy to use? So I think one of the core things is we're launching an L1, but separate projects that we will uh, be involved with as well will also launch uh, a DEX, a lending platform, uh, and a stable coin, right? And really the idea is how do we build some very basic dApps? We're not trying to make them better in a sense from a technical perspective. What we are trying to do is how do we just make them really easy to use, right? How do we actually build a UX that someone can figure out how do we actually do explainer videos, right? How do we write help text? And it's, it's really kind of, and that's a lot of my background, right? It's the traditional internet world, so to speak, where how do you just make it real easy to use? And then how do you find a ton of people to actually try it, right? Because it's not just the making it easy to use, but then it's the acquisition effort of actually getting people to test it. I'm curious about, um, so when you talked about getting people on ramped and the customer service, I immediately think about established institutional players like PayPal's in this, Robinhood's in this, Visa's in this. Um, Lolly is putting up like extensions on the browser. So you get, I think it's like 8% Bitcoin rewards or something when you buy stuff. Like there's a lot of traditional fintech coming in and they're saying, I don't want to look at L1s. I don't want to actually go into and touch the DeFi stuff. I want to bridge people over because they think they can go after the consumers. How did you think about playing in that space versus saying, I'm just going to build an L1? Because there's a hop, right, between massive, like my parents probably understand, like they'll go from a bank to maybe PayPal. But then if you're saying, hey, jump onto the cell one, like that, how do you think about that? Or are you envisioning yourself just as a layer and infrastructure behind a bunch of institutional onboarding uh, ports, if you will? Yeah, so that's so. The L1, at first I was looking at it that way, right? How do I just build a much more eco-friendly user system on one of the existing L1s? I think the challenge ended up being kind of multiple. A, I think there needs to be a really strong public goods funding strategy to make this work, right? Like for example, like it, to me, the fact that Aave pays for an audit for Aave, I mean, that's cool and that is, is what should happen, right? But like someone should pay to audit all the projects because it's a massive problem for my mom. If she does like, she needs to know that, Hey, if this is a major top 30 project on a chain, it's been audited, right? And it's been audited by somebody yeah. actually neutral and somebody actually independent. And it won't be a perfect, right? There's still going to be fraud. There's still going to be scams, but we can reduce those, I think, tremendously. Right. And so how do you, and I think then became the question, right? If it's just an Ethereum, and I try to build a walled garden on Ethereum, which is what I was kind of trying to avoid, right? I really want to just build an open ecosystem. And again, everyone is, by the way, welcome to build on a Terra, right? It's not in any way going to be like, oh, no, no, the only people who can deploy dApps is me, right? I'm, it's going to be fully decentralized. It's going to be open access and it's going to be um, composable as well. But so that was kind of this, the starting point, right? Do we just build it on an ETH? Obviously, it's difficult fee-wise, right? It just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But then with the L1, right, there's so many little changes, like the same with key management, right? I think one of the things um, is make key management just a lot more accessible. Again, there's an interesting role with service providers, and maybe we loop back to that, right? But there's a few, there's there's changes to the L1 where I'm like, well, unless we make that easier, right? And like, it's, it's funny, right? The whole, like, I believe in the uh, not your keys, not your crypto mantra in the sense that I believe that if your money got lost because you lost your keys and it was sent to someone else's wallet, that's a completely immutable transaction, right? There's no way anybody can go back. And I completely believe in that. But to just say, well, not your keys, not your wallet, you're a sucker, right? That's your problem, right? And we have no better solution than that, right? It feels like we need to make progress to make it 
at least just a lot harder for people's keys to constantly get stolen, right? And it's funny, we just literally just had this conversation before this call, right? Where it's like very sophisticated people still get scammed, right? It's just not going to be a super good situation. And so there's a few L1 changes where I was like, nah, I think we just cannot get there without that. And then there's the public goods funding strategy. So it was kind of a little bit of both. And we are still going to be very active in building the dApps. Like at the same, right? One of the things I really want to do is that if someone deploys a dApp, that I'm like, holy shit, it's amazing. I think a ton of users will care about this. I want to have a strategy as the L1 foundation, right? To say, hey, um, we should go help them build a better front end, right? And I think then how do you make it just a lot more accessible, right? How do you marry kind of the traditional crypto development ecosystem with a bunch of really good UX, UI guys and women, right? To come on board and really just take that space forward. And I think, ironically, I actually think like I'd much rather have an ecosystem with 10 or 15 really well done dApps than have an ecosystem with 400 that are barely usable to a regular person, right? It's just a very different strategy of prioritizing. I think it's going to be very culturally different, right? Like the company, the focus of the foundation, the companies will attract to it. So I think it's kind of a bit of a combination and really how do we, how do we just focus the efforts and how do we focus the culture? Because I'm a big believer in culture and having the right people on board. And so, yeah, that's kind of, I guess that's kind of the background there. Yeah, so so jump. Let, let's jump back to the wallets, <clears throat> and I just I just want to hear, and I and I know we're still in a little bit of the conceptual phase. I just want to hear what you would envision for the perfect wallet. Yeah, so the wallet. Okay, so there's challenges with the wallets. I think the bigger challenge to me is the key management side, right? So okay, so here is kind of one of the approaches we're really actively looking at, and it's the idea of this. So. Right now, if I set up an Ethereum wallet, I get one key, right? And there's there's multi-key, multi-sig solutions, right? But they're not really they're not really L1 native, right? And so the idea is let's instead of getting one key, you get and obviously if you want to get one key, you can get one key, right? It kind of ends up to being the user, right? But if you say, hey, no, I want four keys, right? And the idea is take two of those keys and put them just in cold storage. And again, same deal there, right? will make it abundantly clear, hey, you should probably never open these, right? And if it's a, hey, you sign up and whatever, we will send you those cool metal tube thingies that have like, you can actually put your uh, your phrase in and you can put it into your whatever mom's house in the bank vault, right? And then you have two other keys, one of which goes into your wallet, MetaMask, actually it won't be MetaMask since it's not EVM, but it just goes into your wallet. And then the second key goes to a service provider, right? And I think that's kind of one of the big things, really giving a good two-factor auth- uh, authentication type solution. So the idea is being this. I have my wallet and I submit a transaction on whatever, let's say, Aave, right? And I submit the transaction. The service provider picks up the fact that I submitted the transaction and it's a two two keys have to sign in order for any transaction to go through, right? Now the service provider sees, hey, Stefan signed a transaction. Should I countersign it, right? It's like, well, it's on Aave and Stefan is pre-configured so that on Aave it gets countersigned. It's like, good, just countersign it, right? But if it's on some random token, or it's like I am sending tokens to a completely random address, it, they send they send me a text message first, right? Or they call me, right? Like how outrageous of an idea that they should call me and say, "Hey, um, that seems weird. That seems like a potential scam. You sure you want to prove that?" And I'm like, "Yeah, look, I'm definitely sure. Uh, whatever, it's my mom's address. You just don't know it. Like you should send that transaction, right?" And the beauty is, it's still not your keys, not your wallet, right? The service provider cannot steal your money because they only have one of the two keys needed. Even if they even if they they can't really conspire with anyone, right? I have three keys, they have one key. So the idea of self-custody, I very much believe in that, but there needs to be like self-custody plus, right? How do you how do you add some extra extra safety layers into that? And again, it's funny, like 
this is kind of a solved problem, right? I mean, this is not like this is outrageously difficult to do, but it really relies on a just a real world approach, right? I need to do a partnership with a local Swiss service provider that does that, right? It's, it's not that crazy difficult. But I think that's the stuff that the crypto ecosystem hasn't really worked on because really crypto has been built by crypto people for crypto people. And so how do you just kind of look beyond that? And again, that's kind of what I'm talking about when I'm saying just a different cultural view is that's the audience I'm trying to attract, right? If I cannot convincingly tell my mom, she's probably not going to get her money stolen. She's just going to be like, nah, whatever. I'm like happy enough with my regular bank account, right? It's like, especially for people. And it depends, right? If you're in Switzerland, you have access to a pretty good financial system. But and if you're in Africa, you probably don't, right? But so to most people, there's just a lot of inertia to switch. And I think unless we take a lot of those concerns away in like actual practical and good ways, it's going to be really hard to onboard them. Can we talk a little bit about use case? Because you mentioned, you know, like for a typical, typical Ethereum, right? A lot of the activity, AMMs and DEXs and everything, it centers around speculation. It centers around yield farming, you know, for crypto, by crypto, right? Um, your mom is not going to be yield farming, presumably, <laughs> right? So like, maybe, I don't presumably know. Presumably not. But like... <laughs> but she she's familiar with the banking services so she's probably interested like you mentioned like stable coin things that could get get her a little bit more yield than in the real world and then you also talked about like remittance issues and payment and stuff like that are the use cases more i guess skeuomorphic to current financial system to to tradfi like how do you think about that because I don't think like you're, you know, you're not going to have like a toke Mac reactor on your, <laughs> on your own or anything like that. Right. Well, and hopefully we will eventually. Right. But I'm totally with you. Right. Like, and I think that's the, that's the big difference, right? Like my mom does not care what kind of bonding curve your swap is using. Right. It's just kind of like, I don't know, like, is my buddy coming in? Like, okay, whatever. Right. If there's a 0.1% or a 0.12% fee, it's just not going to be super relevant to her. And so, mm -hmm. Really, I think the services that are most important going to be, it's just like basic banking, right? Like, and I like, and again, it's stuff like I want to get my pa my salary paid uh, in, and but well, fiat's a whole separate debate, but like, I want to get my salary paid on chain, right? And then I want to be actually able to spend my money. So how do you start finding credit card providers that actually use it, right? And it's just really those real world services. I think synthetic, synthetic stocks are going to be huge, especially in a lot of the parts of the world where it's not as easily accessible as the U.S., remittance is a huge one, right? Just person to person money transfer. I mean, that's how Venmo got so massive, like so quickly, right? Because I was like, oh, wait, this is way better of way of sending money than sending you a wire. And so just again, business, how do you get those just real world use cases? And how do we focus on those, right? That's kind of what I'm saying. Like we need like 10 really good dApps that let you do 10 re reasonably basic things, but in a way where everyone can easily figure it out. And we're going to be way ahead of the curve, right? And then, and then it's just a matter of getting network effects, right? I'd much rather have 80% of one country, then 5% of the world, right? Because it's just that network effect is just going to make it massively more usable in the real world. Wait, so what you're describing your sounds, yeah, yeah, I think what that makes sense. And I think what you're describing sounds a little bit like what Terra is trying to do, having different stable coins, having different use cases. They have Mirror, which is the synthetic stock um, play. Um, what is, what, are you, are you, how would you differentiate between? that and um, I guess the customer acquisition and like how does the messaging how would like how would you be able to market better than Terra yeah and that was a bit of a, an annoying naming thing there. actually it's name Terra is named after a restaurant in New York 
And so it is sadly somewhat similar to Terra. Um, but anyways, <laughs> so Terra, in my, uh, again, for my understanding, is very heavily based on an algo stable, which I don't love algo stables. Um, I feel like they have quite a bunch of challenges. But again, like their focus is... It, it, Terra is not easier to use than really any of the other ones, right? It's, it's just, I mean, it's like, it's not that much easier at least, right? And that's the key part, right? It's, it's all about the usability, right? That's the, one, that's the one thing I really care about because you can't acquire retail users until it's easy to use. And I, I, it doesn't make any difference how good your acquisition efforts are. If you're trying to acquire them to Ethereum right now, like it's just not going to work, right? Like no one that has a $1,000 bank account will ever sign up to Ethereum. It just makes no sense, right? Now, maybe they yeah. go on a centralized exchange and buy some ETH, right? That might make some sense, right? But they're not actually going to start using it on a day-to-day -day basis. So, and I think, actually, I think the fees, ironically, like I don't want to compete on cheapest fees. Like I don't want to be cheaper than Solana because it just doesn't, the fees aren't, I mean, if they're in the one to 10 cent range, I think that's totally fine. I don't think you need to go for the cheapest thing possible, but you need to go for the most usable thing, right? And just that strategy of like, hey, again, how can I call someone, right? How is there literally in any country a call center phone number that I can call and say, hey, look, I sent coins somewhere and I can't find them, right? And not just for a centralized exchange, right? But I can say, no, no, I send coins to Jay or I tried bridging them to this other thing like I lost them, right? Like how, how do I find them, right? And it's just those basic things where I'm like, yeah, that's that would make a huge difference. And it's funny, like I do lots of phone calls with friends. They're like, oh no, I lost my money. I'm like if it's fine, it's still there. Let's go find it, right? But I think a lot of that has to be resolved. And I don't think anyone in the crypto space has really kind of taken that approach. And it's, I mean, by the way, I think one of the challenges here is just a massive vision, right? It's not, like I'm not talking about building one dApp. Like I'm talking about building bunches of dApps and an L1 and a whole services ecosystem around it. So it really is a very different vision with a very different scope. Um, and obviously, hopefully if it works, it'll be pretty awesome. But that's the. So, so when you're, when you're talking about, you know, a, a decentralized, um, you know, L1 and decentralized dApps and, but, but now we have, we have, you know, people, people in the mix and people are unpredictable um, and, and, and in most cases unreliable. So how do you keep, a decentralized tech support, you know, running around a chain without centralizing that in some, in some aspect? Well, so to be clear, I think someone will, in fact, have to centralize it, right? You can't really decentralize people who answer phones, right? Just kind of inherently, that's just not how... <laughs> which, is, which is, again, why I was like, I don't know. I, please I, enlighten me on this. I, I have no well, idea how this will work. Yeah, okay. So I think... Some, everybody needs a boss. Yeah, so, so the core idea there is, right, no one is currently doing that for Ethereum, because there's no revenue model behind it, right? You like, who's going to pay you right now to do that? And by the way, I don't think a Terra network as the foundation should be paying for that. I think that's not a long-term sustainable model. But what the idea is, is, if at the L1, we build in the ability for users to authorize an address for a service provider to take fees, right? So I literally set up an address and say, hey, this address, whenever there's a transaction, whatever this call center that does customer support for me is allowed to take a 0.1% fee, right? Because to me, I'm like, okay, cool, like whatever. It's not a super huge amount of money and I'd much rather have somebody to call, right? And so the idea is how do you build a whole bunch of service provider companies? And again, they will be third-party companies. Like this is not an Aterra network building a humongous call center, right? It is really how do you build a whole bunch of call centers that are their own companies 
that have their own acquisition strategy, right? But that really build that audience and just help them, right? And so then obviously long-term, the goal is to have them, the one with the most awesome customer service for the least money is probably going to get the most users, right? But so how do you build a real world ecosystem around blockchain that isn't, right? And I think that's the, I think in blockchain, a lot of the goal is to be fully 100% decentralized about everything, right? And I see why, like it makes a good bit of sense, but I think there's also the challenge that some things just cannot be decentralized. So unless we want to accept that there cannot be customer support, it just, it just doesn't work, right? And so how do you, but how do you work that into an actually credibly neutral L1 versus just like saying, oh, we're just going to become whatever a centralized chain, right? Because that's not at all. So, so yeah, so let me, let me see if I, if I can understand this and, and, and Lily can, can then explain to me why I'm wrong. So you're, mm-hmm. uh, let's, I'm assuming you're talking proof of, proof of stake. Um, so Correct. meaning that you're going to be rewarding miners to keep, to keep everything running. So you're not talking about a second validator node of some sort that is people, and I'm not meaning an actual validator, but you're talking about some extra thing that exists of which it hasn't been named, or maybe it is, um, that, that people vote for or, or stake to and say, so say, this is who I want to handle my tech support. And there could be hundreds of these companies. They're independent. They're independently operated. No, I'm totally wrong. No, no, not really. No. So the idea really is just that, right? If, if you go, when you set up an address, right, right now, and it's very, right now, address really just key value pairs, right? You get a public key and you get a private key and that's kind of that. And you can have tokens, right? And there's a whole bunch yep. of stuff that we kind of want to add to addresses to make it more user-friendly. But one of the things is, right, it's kind of like, think about it like a smart contract that's built into the L1. So that every time you send a transaction, right, and let's say whatever, Correct. there is a 50 cent fee, that in addition to the 50 cent gas fee, you can authorize, and it's completely up to the user. You can say, look, I want no one to take any fees on me because I hate fees and I don't need support, and that's perfectly fine. You should be able to do that, right? But you can also say, but also every time I do a transaction, also send 10 cents to this other address, right? And then that other address is, for example, the customer service people. It could be an insurance company. It's customer service is just one of the things, right? You can say, hey, no, I want my wallet to be insured, and therefore it's 10 cents a transaction to this insurance company or a percentage of assets. But how do you build that into the L1, right? How do you give them a natively supported revenue stream that isn't just, right? Because billing people, I mean, it's really hard, right? Because there's no automatic rebilling on crypto. All the transactions need to be authorized. So unless that's made a lot easier, the frictions for companies to onboard users just too high, it's too expensive. So they're just not going to do it. No, I, and, and now I'm starting to understand a little bit more, which is essentially um, slightly similar to the Deso model with the fact that anyone can build an app on there. We know what your transactions are. We know what your transaction history is. If I say I no longer like Bank of America and I want to go with, with Bank XYZ, instead of me having to tran- do all the transfers and closing accounts and doing everything there and then starting fresh over here, it's just flip the switch and, and the new provider or whatever you call them already has my transaction history. They already know who I am. It's, there's, there's, it's very lightweight to switch. Is that, am I getting closer? Yeah, you're spot on. So let's say, so exactly that's right. So you have Bank of America to provide whatever. You want to be able to call them and say, hey, whatever, can you set up a transfer for me? That type of stuff against the multi-sig. Or even if not, if it's just an insurance. And so basically, if you're like, oh, their service sucks, you deauthorize them, right? Which means they will probably, next time you call them and you're not authorized anymore, like, well, you're not a client anymore, right? But then you authorize bank, whatever, Chase, right? And then Chase will suddenly, you will be a client of theirs, right? And so really that portability gotcha. of your banking where they, okay, instead of a bank being a bank, it will become a service provider, right? Which is actually kind of gotcha. interesting how that changes regulation, right? Because suddenly they don't have custody anymore. So technically they're not a bank. They're just literally a service provider. 
But so, and again, banking, banks may be a bad example, right? But it could be insurance. I mean, there's so many things, right? There's so many things you'd probably want some real world support on. And really, how do you give that native revenue model to service providers so that they actually bother doing it, right? Because right now, like, I mean, they're not going to do it, right? And so, and by the way, it's probably not, I don't think banks will start providing this, right? I think that's totally unrealistic. They're too much of an incumbent, right? But I don't know. Just anything with a lot of physical locations, right? I don't know. It could be somebody like Western Union, but probably not really. But it could, I mean, it could literally be anyone, right? Anyone with a big footprint in a certain country could say, hey, wait, if I help people set up new addresses, which means whatever, I get a bunch of metal tubes to make it really easy. I put a phone number on the metal tubes that if they lose their seed keys and somebody's trying to like get them to unlock it, it says big on there, like, don't open this. It's probably a scam. Call us first before you do that, right? There's lots of basic stuff you can kind of do if you have that real world component to it. And that's kind of what I'm trying to marry with. But again, none of that's going to happen unless they have a way to do revenue. And I think that's the L1 supported revenue model, I think is going to be pretty important. I can totally see that because right now in a lot of um, a lot of transactions, like people are like, oh, well, just go to Nexus Mutual or go to Unslashed and take out an insurance policy. But you have to go do that yourself. If you have native dApps or native service providers, and even if, if there's like A, B, C, D, E, you can you can select which one you'd like to go with. You're creating a, maybe a competitive environment even for the best customer service at the best rates. Um, but it's, it, it puts that front of mind. So I don't have to say like, oh, shoot, I should have gotten this insurance policy way down the line. Um, I can I can definitely see a use case for that. And there are government, to your point about centralization and, and decentralization, there are issues now with um, totally decentralized governance models and DAOs um, with decision-making that have become very slow and laborious and trying to get people to vote and participate. Um, there's a movement of trying to actually have, uh, you know, task committees within DAOs so that decision-making is now uh, delegated to smaller groups and stuff. So I think, you know, there's, there's going to be oscillation between decentralization and centralization. And I think decentralization right away for something like this may not make sense at all. Yeah. And I, I love your point on governance. So I think, so how I've been thinking about this, right? Because obviously that's a huge topic, right? How do you set this up from scratch? And so I think governance, I have kind of two strong feelings on this. So first off, I'm with you. I think there need to be governance boards in the sense of people need to be able to make fast decisions, right? Because there's a group of people that A, really know what they're doing, and a lot of the fast, right, there's some controversial decisions where you're like, now nah, if we make the other decision that might be more popular, aka let's just burn half the supply, right, and everyone will be 50% richer, like, yeah, that might be a popular decision, but it's probably going to not be a great long-term play, right? So how do you build these governance boards, but then democratically let them be replaced? And I think that's one of the things that I'm really very, very actively working on. One of the things I want to do, so there's going to be a foundation um, that's going to do a lot of the public goods funding and actually... Part, part of the gas fees are going to get split between validators and the foundation because I really want the foundation to have an active revenue stream. And so, but the idea there is, A, the foundation, the people on the board of the foundation should be accountable and they should be replaceable in the sense that there should be, hey, look, Stefan is the board, chair of the board. He's doing a terrible job. Let's have a like, let's have a global vote, right? And say, hey, Stefan should be off of the foundation. A, I believe strongly in that. And B, I also strongly believe that the entire foundation should be able to be fired. So the idea that's saying that there's an address that part of gas fees are sent to, the nice thing with that is you can also say, hey, let's have a revolt, right? The current foundation is doing a terrible job. Let's set up a new foundation. Let's have a public vote. And that gas fee gets redirected to the new foundation, right? So I very much believe in the democratic process 
but I do think it needs to, especially in such an incredibly fast moving space. Right. I think, right. Even in like in Switzerland, right. Like, I mean, we are very democratic, very direct democracy as well, but it's also very slow. Right. And so doing very slow processes in a very fast moving space, it just doesn't really feel to me that that's necessarily going to be a huge, uh, it's just it's going to be hard to do that, right? And I think that's some of what we're seeing with Ethereum. We're finding that consensus is just incredibly difficult, and it's just very just takes a long time, right? But at the same time, I do believe people should be fired if they're not actually doing the best job and be replaced, etc. So I guess that's kind of like my my I don't know feelings on governance. So I think I see it much more like a like a traditional company would be run, where there's a board of directors, uh, the public shareholders can fire the board of directors, they can replace them, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But you don't every time whatever. Chase makes a decision; they don't have to do a public vote, right? It's just kind of—it's kind of how do you find that balance of accountability, yet actually moving fast and still making good and educated decisions? And, and to be clear, there's yeah. there's now mega billion dollar com companies in the blockchain that have no idea that have built out every single facet that we've talked about, and none of it works. So, um, my my next question to you is: is we're talking about financial, we're talking about you know banking, we're talking about this. Um, traditionally, crypto is is uh, in the eyes uh, this morning of, of Hillary Clinton uh, is for criminals and terrorists. And so, how how are we going to prevent uh, a, a horde of criminal and terrorists from using uh, Altera's banking system here? Yeah, it's okay. That's that's a super interesting and a very controversial thing, obviously, right? And so, and I'm actually taking a controversial standpoint on this. So, okay, I guess to me. To convince my mom to use it, and I just keep using her as an example just because I think, whatever. Um, we'll, we'll bring her on the show next time. Things have to be reasonably safe, right? And realistically speaking, my mom does not want this to fund terrorism, right? And so I think it's kind of interesting, right? The, the everyone should have unlimited access is very much a crypto value, and I don't feel like it's nearly as strongly of a public, like, like regular people value, right? Like very few people like complain that they have to KYC to get a bank account at Chase, right? That's just not something people particularly care about. And maybe, I mean, there's upsides and downsides to that, right? I definitely see the downsides. So kind of my philosophy on this is it should be possible to be completely anonymous. So I do agree with that. The network itself will never require KYC. But at the same time, as much as I believe that people should have the choice to KYC, I also think there should be an easy way for dApps to require KYC if they want to. And so here's kind of how our approach yeah. works on that. So the addresses on Aterra are more than just key value pairs. We really try to add extra data and it becomes a part of the state of the blockchain so that it can be accessed by other dApps. And so as the, here's the idea, and again, this is still open for iteration. I'd love to do it fully decentralized. I don't think it's gonna be really possible in the short run. But the idea is this, we find some third-party KYC providers and they're third-party, right? They're not associated with me. And you can go to them. Again, you can just set up an Aterra address and say, I'm doing nothing, right? It's just a complete whatever key value pair, that's it. And you can, it's fully functional. There's the network will never restrict anything that an address does. But you can also go to a KYC provider and say, hey, please KYC this wallet for me. And how that'll work is that you as the user Hey, you're the one to pay for it, right? So it's just your choice. It's not done without that. But then you can tell the KYC provider, hey, post to this address, which I prove to you is mine, that this is my address. Meaning it can either be like full name, right? Stefan Goss, Swiss citizen, right? Um, we have KYC this person. He is not politically exposed. He is not on any sanctions lists, right? Just full transparent KYC, basically. Or you can say, look, 
I want to be KYC'd, but exclude my name, right? So all you're going to put into the blockchain is, hey, this address has been KYC'd by KYC provider A. And we can tell you, the DAP provider, that they have been KYC'd, meaning we know who they are. And we can tell you they're not politically exposed, they're not on any sanctions list, and they live in this country, right? So pseudo-anonymous, so to speak, in the sense that, like, there is someone who can tell, but also there isn't, like, but it's not the network doing it. And the beauty of that is obvious. And again, there's a lot of questions on how regulators will perceive that, right? The beauty of it, if this really starts getting accepted, is that you have to KYC once. And then if you switch from DAP to DAP, they can just write, a DAP can just write a contract to say, hey, instead of like requiring to KYC with me, your DAP, which means my KYC data is going to a probably random company in a random like jurisdiction that I have absolutely no idea what their privacy laws are, right? Instead of doing that, they can say, look, this is a pool that can only be entered by KYC wallets, right? And by the way, someone might also build a pool that can be entered by anyone, right? So it's totally up to the DAP provider. But basically, we give the DAP builder, developer, whatever you want to call it, the option to say, no, no, I want only KYC people. And you can say, I want KYC fully KYC, right? First name, last name, everything. Or I accept the anonymous KYC in kind of a middle route. And then so the idea is that the KYC provider specializes in privacy in the sense that if I KYC, and they're and so I am in Switzerland, I'm a Swiss citizen, I live in Zug, Switzerland now. Uh, Switzerland has great privacy laws, right? I mean, bank secrecy kind of played into that. So very, very strong in privacy. And so to me, if I KYC with a Swiss provider that I know literally stores all my records offline, right? I mean, it's pretty cool, actually. There's a ton of like Switzerland, the, the country sold a bunch of old military bunkers to like all kinds of companies when they were decommissioned. It's a bunch of data centers have bought these bunkers and provide offline storage. So literally you can send your data to the Swiss mountain vault that's completely dis disconnected from the internet once it's stored there. So there's cool ways of making sure your data is really truly secure. And at the same time, and I support this personally, right? If whatever, uh, whatever the government of South Africa can come to a Swiss judge, make a credible case why this address violated 16 sanctions law and funded terrorism, I have no problem with that person getting disclosed. I personally, if the judge says, and it goes through a full jurisdiction, a, ju a judicial review, I have personally no pro problem with them saying, yep, this is the KYC, right? But it'll be a high bar, right? Convincing a Swiss judge to release that is not going to be a particularly simple thing. And so I think it's a really interesting combination between privacy I believe personally in the mission of KYC, which is there's some things we don't want, some people we don't want using it, right? I personally believe in that. And so I think it's a good mix between those. Also, like the, the whole argument that you're like, okay, if you're on Ethereum and if you access it from like a regular computer, right? I mean, just to think that like the government couldn't just call your ISP and say, hey, um, that IP, who's that, right? I mean, if your government wants to figure out who that address belongs to, I mean, they can do that anyways, right? To say that that's not happening is just kind of a pipe dream. So I feel like, it, there's basically no sacrifice of privacy by doing our methodology. Yet, I think there's massive upside, right? Because part of usability to me is the government not hating it, right? If the government outlaws it and makes it super difficult, that doesn't help usability, right? And again, my mom doesn't care if she has to KYC. And I think many people will not. So I don't know. It's going to be you controversial. Know, the, I'm sure I, a lot of people will hate it. But I think it's going to be a, <laughs> I think it's going to be a good step forward in the right way, right? It's not, I don't want to go centralized, right? I, all of it is fully decentralized. It's not run by me, right? We want to have multiple entities that can do this. And that's really the idea, right? How do you kind of like strike those reasonable, hopefully uh, real world compromises? 
Yeah, and let's be clear: if the the criminals and terrorists have have a, a million opportunities to use things that have not that have nothing to do with the terror. So even just even a low bar of entry, it should be enough to to accomplish that goal. So that that's a really good one. Uh, Lily, did you have any, any questions on KYC? Yeah, I mean, I think you know, I, I would really like this is a really big vision. Um, I'm I I want to hear more about your go to market strategy. Like, what do you attack first? What are you building first? What does the dev team look like? Like, what's the roadmap? Right. The vision makes sense. Like, the execution is is the the big deal. <laughs> yeah, that's gonna be the hard part too. <laughs> uh, so no, I, okay. Yeah. So first off, so so I'm gonna loop back actually to the kind of the. Uh, I'm calling it an ELO, an ecosystem launch uh, offering instead of an ICO, but it's kind of just cute. So, um, but I'm kind of lo- lo- looping back to that. So part of the design here really is the idea. What I don't want to do is more of a traditional ICO where really what it does is just go out and say, I'm a sell token and raise like a billion dollars literally and put it in a wallet somewhere that I'm just going to start doing a ton of grants from and hope that it turns into something. I don't love that, right? I think there's too many downsides. I don't think it really does anything for the ecosystem either, right? Because you not, I mean, you have a tradable token now, which is great and you have funding, but I really think the, the strategy I've come up with is just better basically. So first off, when we launch, <laughs> uh, we'll have a value. <laughs> You'd hope so, right? I, that I wouldn't launch a worse yeah. strategy. Um, but so phase one is going to be just a straight up validator sale, right? Because you kind of have to have a safe network. Uh, it's a proof of stake chain, right? So you need enough validators out there. And again, yeah. it's, by, by the way, it's going to be a fork of Solana. So the tech is going to be very similar to Solana. The downside of that is we'll have the same issue with the hardware. The hardware requirements are going to be fairly high. And we can at some point loop back to why I think that's a good decision or a, at least a minor trade-off. And so validator sale first. But then phase two will be, instead of just straight up a public sale, will be we will launch a stable coin and a fully decentralized stable coin that's collateralized with other crypto assets. And some of this, by the way, is kind of up in the air, might change a little bit, but that's kind of just at large the idea. So we'll launch a stable coin, which means we will launch the DAP. And again, it's going to be hopefully very easy to use. (laughs) That's going to be the big focus, right? How do you make this easy to How do you explain what it is? How do you make it just super easy to use? And so the idea is that instead of just selling Instead of just selling like, hey, give the foundation a bunch of money and we'll send you a bunch of tokens, you can come and as an end user, if you say, hey, I love what they're doing, I believe that the world is going to need crypto and they need to be usable, you can come and say, hey, I'll take my Ethereum and I will contribute it to the stablecoin pool. It's going to be very similar to how something like DAI or something works, right? And so you can get to, like, and let's say you put in $1,000 worth of ETH, you get $1,000 worth of stablecoin. And on top of that, you get whatever $500 worth of a Terra that's time locked for 12 months, right? But the idea is how can you actually provide value to the ecosystem, which having a good stable currency, in my opinion, is absolutely crucial, right? And again, I'm not a, there's lots of like fiat minimalists slash BTC will crush fiat. I'm not one of them. I personally believe that regular people will likely want to trade in their local currencies. And so for me, like having a lot of stable currencies available, I think is crucial. So anyway, phase, phase two is kind of like, come in, provide money to stablecoin. Now, the cool part is the, the launch vehicle, and we're looking at association foundations, a bit complicated, but the foundation will contribute the money from the validator sale into the stablecoin pool as well, right? Because we want to build as much of an availability of the stablecoin as possible. That's phase two. And by the way, all of this is because, again, this is actually kind of nice thing with KYC, because we will have unique identities and like relatively civil proof unique identities, we will be able to say, hey, on day one, you can contribute up to $1,000. On day two, you can contribute up to $5,000, et cetera, et cetera. Right? We really want to be very democratic. 
So it's not going to be one of those like, oh, you can put whatever. The super whales get all of the money, right? right? Really trying to avoid that. How do you spread it out a lot? And so, okay. So phase two, launch a stable coin. Phase three is launching a lending platform, uh, something similar to an Aave type situation, right? Same deal there. Uh, the foundation will put all, take all the money, all the stable coin it got from phase two, put it into a lending platform, which means there's going to be a lot of lending availability. And then same deal there. If you come and say, hey, you can put your BTC into that lending platform and it'll get time locked, right? That's the whole point. You make available for other people to have a lot more liquidity. So you can say, hey, I'll put one BTC into the lending platform. And in exchange for that, you, in addition of the lending fees, you get an extra, whatever, $10,000 worth of a Terra time locked over 12 months. And so that's really the idea. How do you get it super liquid in a lending? And then launch an exchange. I think that'll be a big one, like a full DEX. It's not going to be centralized. It is going to be a full DEX. And there, the idea will be how do we, and it's going to be a, a, an owned liquidity model. Well, probably both an owned and a rented liquidity model, but it's much more of an own-like situation where what I really want to do is have the DEX start buying liquidity. And so the idea there is you can come and you say, whatever, you bring ETH USDC, uh, you add it to the lending platform, sorry, you add it to the DEX, you provide liquidity, and then you can sell that liquidity token, let's say whatever, it's $1,000 worth of LP, you can sell it to uh, Terra for $1,500 if you time lock it for eight months, 12 months. It's going to be various, various different products. And so same deal there. Mm -hmm. How do you get a ton of liquidity into the system right off the bat? Because again, obviously to me, if users are going to be able to use it, it has to be liquid. It has to be, it has to be lots of availability. So that's kind of phase four. And then my favorite, and I think by far the coolest idea is, so the network should not own these dApps, right? That's a bad strategy. The network should A, not have favorites, right? So it's a terrible idea for the network to own them in the long run. In the short run, launching them, I, it's not great, but I think that is what it is. And by the way, the network, again, it's going to be, the, the entity structure is still kind of up in the air. But so the idea will be that whoever at that point owns the stablecoin governance token, the lending platform governance token, the uh, and the DEX governance tokens, we're going to create DAOs. So the, sorry, let me actually, it's very complicated. And I think actually that's going to be one of the big problems with this is selling the, how awesome this is in like a somewhat explainable way. It's going to be, it's going to be interesting. <laughs> but so in the last phase, we're going to create DAOs. So the traditional ICO model is a foundation raises a ton of money and then it's, and the foundations are always centralized, right? There's just no way around that. Like someone has access to that wallet and gives that wallet away. I don't like that. I think it's not super capital efficient and I think I have a better way. So the idea is instead of raising money for a foundation that then does ecosystem investments, we will set up DAOs. And the DAOs, we will try to recruit some really high quality VCs to run the DAOs. And so because we now have these three DAPs, that the governance tokens of the stablecoin will be contributed to DAO 1, the governance token of the lending platform will be contributed to DAO 2, and the governance token of the DEX will be contributed to DAO 3. And then on top of that, Terra puts in a whole bunch of Terra tokens into the DAOs, and then we actually let people buy the DAO, right? So we fully decentralize the ecosystem funding to the public. And so the idea there is whatever, let, like whatever, let's say we put $20 million worth of a Terra into DAO 1, we start selling the DAO governance tokens, and that money that is getting sold against also gets recontributed to the DAO. So the idea is to have several like kind of venture DAOs that then do the ecosystem investment instead of having a centralized foundation. And also it has the nice benefit of decentralizing those dApps. So I won't own them or control them in any way anymore. So I don't know, I'm pretty excited about that. So the idea being 
hopefully it'll be a lot more capital efficient instead of me just like spending money on my pet projects. Um, there'll be real VCs in the community deciding where the money goes. So, so jumping over to a, a little bit of tokenomics, um, as, as we, we kind of move in that direction, what, what's your, what's your first thoughts? Is this a single coin? Is this a multi-coin? Do we have, you know, uh, essentially a, 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 a currency to manage the, the rails, the level one plus a governance plus other things, or is it, you know, kind of a, an ETH all in one deal? No, so so here's how it'll work. Well, and again, some of this is still somewhat up in the air, but this is the general idea right now. So the network we're, we're all itself, conceptualizing right now. So fair enough, fair <laughs> enough. So the network itself will have the Atera token, just as Ethereum has ETH. The Atera token okay. will be used to do fees, right? It's just a very much straight up utility token that is in charge of running the network. And then separately, the DApps will have their own governance tokens, but they will not they will be contributed into the DAOs. And then the DAOs will obviously have the DAO governance tokens. So it's kind of piggybacked and a little complicated, but I think the outcome will be way better with a bit more of an advanced structure than just a giant token sale. So that's the that's the high level idea. But then after that, I mean, really the goal is to get the community involved, right? Like we want other people to build other stuff with all kinds of token models. But the tokenomics for the L1 are straight up just the same thing as everyone else has basically. It's really just the, how do we launch it in a way to get people engaged and involved on day one versus like, hey, let's launch an L1 and then let's start giving a bunch of money away and hope that at some point some people will build some cool stuff, right? It really is much more of an, an active, let's build some cool stuff ourselves, let's decentralize the cool stuff, right? We shouldn't own it and we shouldn't run it, but that doesn't mean we can't build it. And especially in the UX UI side, right? I think setting a really, setting a really good high bar that everyone can then fork, right? I want them all to fork good interfaces, right? I don't want them to be forking really old stuff that that isn't great, right? I'd much rather set a high standard and say, hey, fork this, right? Take take it all, make it way better. Oh, none of the dApps that we launch, like we're not looking to underprice anyone, right? We are not going to make the decks fee-free because that makes absolutely no sense, right? We want other people to compete and we actually want other people to win the competition. So it's going to be very much yeah. like all the dApps will be kind of like on a fair playing field, and obviously, they'll have a team, et cetera, that kind of run them. What is the um, what does your dev situation look like? Because like, this is a pretty significant undertaking. Like, how is that? How is that coming along? What is? Um, how are you running your team? Like day to day, what does that look like? Yeah. So okay, let me maybe quickly loop back to the tech and then indirectly answer that question. So on the tech side, it's going to be a fork of Solana. Um, we decided on Solana because we like the speed. We like the technology, we like the scalability, and we like kind of just the long-term viability. Um, if ETH2 was out, we would have probably considered that too. But really, there's just not that many. There's, it's just not there yet. And so we're going with the Solana route, which I think is going to be the right choice in the long run mm -hmm. anyways. And so what? So it's a fork of Solana. There's obviously a bunch of changes, right? But the changes are relatively not on, like we're not trying to make it more scalable. In fact, like we're actually going to probably have higher fees because we don't want as much active exchange trading, which I think is not really necessarily helpful, right? If you want to trade whatever ETH BTC, you probably should do that in FTX and Solana, right? That's the better place to do it. I'm not trying to compete with the corporate money, so to speak, right? Again, my mom doesn't care if it takes one second or four seconds to go through and if the fee is 0 0.001 or 0.1, right? It's just not going to be super relevant. And so the idea is to not make a giant amount of tech changes on that. And so... The idea really is the innovation is on the front end, is on the usability and kind of all the other sides. So we have a tech team. Uh, we have a few outsourced people. We're starting to get going. It was still pretty early phase. I mean, we're really just putting everything together, launching it. This really is more division 
we're making pretty good progress. We have a pretty strong plan, I think. And we have some really interesting people that we're working with, but it's, it's everything isn't quite finalized yet. I have some cool announcements for later on that, hopefully. But so that, that's really the idea. So we're really just getting that going. But I think I, I've, I mean, I've had developer teams working with me for the last 10 years and they have always been 10, 20 people teams. So I think building a really strong team is going to be a huge focus. I think me as a, that's my background, right? I, I, I build good teams and then I hopefully run good teams. <laughs> and so that, that's really the idea there. But really it's, it's ironically as huge of a vision it is. I think most of the tech talent will be front end and it will be, how do you make it easy to use? So UX, UI, that type of stuff. Because again, like I personally think that the contracts that run most of the modern DEXs out there are pretty much good enough, right? I'm not sure how much innovation I can bring there at least. I'm sure someone else can, but I think my skill set is much more on how do I make it simple enough to use so people can actually use it. And that's going to be the real focus. I'm really curious about because you mentioned having a lot of experience in customer acquisition and advice and stuff. What does that look like for this, right? Like instead of if you build it, they'll come and then taking to crypto Twitter and all of that, your typical uh go-to-market strategy. Um, how do you get your mom on this chain? Yeah, I know. Yeah, I know that. Like, I think that's the big challenge, right? I think. And so, okay. So several points there. So first off, I think currently in the crypto, like if I launch a new L1 right now, my goal is to basically take TVL away from some other L1, right? It's more the, oh, let's mm -hmm. have a massive, whatever, liquidity incentive package, right? And Avalanche tries to get TVL from Solana, right? I mean, that's pretty much the strategy. It's very much inside of the ecosystem. People are trying to get people to move over and move that TVL. So that's kind of the more the traditional, right? And so I really don't want to get caught up in that because A, I don't, I don't think it's that interesting. I think the problem is that money is just going to leave again as soon as your incentives run out, right? So I don't really know. Now it builds the ecosystem. So there's definitely something to be said for that. But really the idea is much more, I believe in local network effects. So for example, what we really want to do is like, we want to go after specific regions. So for example, I want to say, and I think one of the interesting things is like Latvia, Lithuania, and um, Estonia, right? Three con Northern countries in Europe, uh, all between a million and a half and 3 million people. Good financial system, they're in the Euro, so they don't really have a particularly strong incentive to hate this, right? If you go after a country and go after a country, if you focus your acquisition efforts on a country that has their own currency, then that might be much more of a problem for them. So they might care more. So picking countries where they're like on a currency that isn't theirs at least, right? And how do you go to those countries and say, look, what do those people really care about, right? What is the problem we can solve for them? And then just go big on real advertising, just traditional advertising and not like crypto Twitter advertising, right? How do I actually get to the end user? So how do we say, hey, let's build a localized strategy. We pick Estonia for whatever reason ends up being that sets them apart. And we say, look, let's spend 10, 20, 30 million dollars on advertising to that country, right? Let's buy traditional ads. Let's say, hey, look, here's the services we think people care about. And it might be like, look, there's no good Venmo in Estonia. So let's build, and again, Venmo is just something that crypto can kind of by default replace and just be quite a lot better at, faster, cheaper, uh, easier to use, potentially if you do it right. And so how do we go after and say, how do we onboard everyone to a Terra's version of Venmo, right? And then how do we get those people to say, hey, maybe you should also try buying some synthetic stocks. And then how do we get them to say, and here's the other 16 cool things that crypto can do. And so it's much more of like a because if I come to a party and whatever, I didn't bring beer and you did, right? If I can pair you in a Terra, that's kind of cool, right? People, how do you get that word of mouth going? But that's really what I'm trying. That's what I'm all about, right? How do you go after that end audience? And how do you get them to say, holy shit, this is so much better than everything else I've ever tried, right? And I think that's, and I think that's interesting. Again, 
we're not looking too much at the tech side. I think that's going to be the contribution that Atera hopefully makes to the ecosystem is we want to try just onboard a ton of people. Um, and so our quote unquote liquidity incentives will be much more, hey, get 10 bucks if you sign up and send money to your friends, right? So much more of a just a traditional acquisition strategy that is, yeah, I don't know, it's just ad agencies, <laughs> TV ads, et cetera. So, you know, I'm, I'm glad that uh, this isn't your first startup because uh, quite simply, this is a massive, a, a massive <laughs> undertaking. And, yeah. and, and what, you're, what you're describing is, is clearly validated in, in already what we've seen now for blockchains and clearly the, the correct direction. So, you know, just, just to kind of circle this thing around and wrap it up, you know, where's your head on the next few steps to even get this, this pump primed for you to have this opportunity? Yeah, totally. So uh, next step is we're going to be raising... Okay, one of the things we are trying to raise as little money as possible, ironically, right? What we don't want to do is have a token distribution that's like 50% owned by VCs. So really the goal is to raise not that much money. Um, and again, because of our tech strategy, we, we're pretty sure we can do it on a um, very efficient budget. So we're going to raise a little bit of money. We're going to build a really cool team. And then the goal is to do um, the ELO slash the ICO uh, on mainnet. So it's going to be fully functional. It's fully on mainnet. And then, but again, same deal there. Like our strategy isn't to raise a ton of money, right? It's how do we get liquidity? How do we get stablecoin availability? All that stuff. So it's going to be much more focused around that. And then we want to raise a little bit of a war chest, right? So we can go out, buy ads and acquire users, but it's really going to be much more focused around late. How do we, so it's going to be phased. We're going to do a little round right now. We're going to maybe do a bit of a bit. When I'm saying little, I mean, I think I want to definitely raise less than $30 million in total, right? And I mean, like, right, that's, which is tiny compared to rounds, tiny, like $300 million fractional. rounds that's a there's, lot there's, of there's, right? there's, there's, there's JPEGs, NFTs yeah. that go for <laughs> that three times that. that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So really trying to keep it relatively small and which really the idea being I want it to be democratically distributed, right? I don't want to just spend VC's money uh, to make it marginally better. Like I'd much rather just actually, how do we get people involved? And so that, that's really the next step, uh, built a tech team. I'm hoping we can get to mainnet pretty quickly in the next three, four, five, six months. That's kind of the timeline I'm thinking. And then we'll go from there and we'll start getting some real users onboarded and we can see how much progress we make, how quickly. Awesome. Well, we're definitely going to bring you back in and, and uh, you know, see how this goes next quarter um, and, and see how this progresses. But, but thank you so much, Lily. Thank you, uh, Stefan. Uh, this has been absolutely fabulous. And this is kind of really uh, the first glimpse at Atera. Uh, and, and really from the, from the creator's mind, uh, Lily and I are just trying to understand and, and flush these things out. And we're interested to see as, as this path goes forward. So thank you so much, sir. Yeah, thank you so much for taking the time. This was super helpful to be able to, to explain it and get some really smart questions going. So thank you so much. Why Whales was founded in 2021 by Jay Steinbeck, a passionate entrepreneur and business owner with the purpose of bringing YPO and YNG members together in the cryptoverse. Why Whales is a collaborative and confidential community centered around cryptocurrencies and blockchain technology an exclusive crypto hub of more than 600 members. To be notified when we release new content, please subscribe to our show in your preferred listening app. For more information, visit www.ywhales.com. YWhales is not affiliated with YPO, but at this time only allow for YPO, YPO Gold, and YNG members due to privacy and confidentiality. Support and production for today's episode was done by Truthwork Media. 
Nothing in the podcast constitutes professional and or financial advice, nor does any information on the podcast constitute a comprehensive or complete statement of the matters discussed or the law relating thereto.